Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. I am strong. Feminism has shaped the lives of everyone in our country. Now, when did it begin? We usually go back to, well, people like Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique in the 1960s and 70s. But does it go farther back than that, tracing its way through the suffragettes even before that? And did those suffragettes of the 19th century, did they have their women's movement co-opted by second wave feminism? Turns out they didn't. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us for part one on the history and future of feminism, Dr. Carrie Grass. She's a married mother of five children in Virginia, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and author of several books, including her latest, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Dr. Grass, welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be with you today. You say that feminism's failure at its root is its misdiagnosis of what ails women. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think feminism, you know, you go back to the very beginning of it, and a lot of us have this misperception that things change dramatically in feminism in the the second wave. And um, that was one of the things I really wanted to dig into in this book, because I I didn't know myself. And so I went all the way back to the very beginning, 1780s, 1790s. And I think what women were really trying to get at was obviously to help women, but they looked around and saw that the lives of women were so much harder than the lives of men, largely because of women's fertility, that they thought, why don't we help women? But the question they were asked and trying to answer was, how do we help women become like men? I think that when you sort of shift the lens of the, the movement, look at it through that lens, suddenly you start seeing what's happening and you know how even we get to this point today where the trans situation is happening and women are actually actively trying to change their bodies through technology to be like men's. But that's really where it started. And I think it was it was started with the best of intentions, but they didn't really realize that it came with a lot of consequences that many people couldn't have anticipated. Why is it that so many today can offer no definition of that word woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a part of this, how do we make women more like men? And, you know, one of the the key constitutive parts about being a woman is being a mother. And um, motherhood now has sort of become like getting a driver's license. Like, you can get one or not or, you know, whatever. And um, obviously not every woman is, is made to be a biological mother, but I think every mother is made to be a psychological mother or a spiritual mother and, and be engaged in the lives of others. Because I think motherhood and womanhood fundamentally are it boil down to some basic things like nourishing people, sheltering people, providing people a place to become the best person that they're they're meant to be, whether that's psychological or biological or whatever. And I think that that's the real problem is because the ideology has gone so far astray that, you know, the woke culture and this effort to try and erase gender altogether, that things have really gotten confused. And so it's just, you know, a lot easier to make womanhood a question of will and what people feel or want, instead of really looking at biology and looking at the gifts that women actually have. So I think there's a lot of, of pieces to it. I try to lay out in the book, you know, very clearly, but I, I think it's just 
it looks new, but it's not new. And it stems from this fundamental question of the idealization of men and women sort of following suit and the dropping away of motherhood. What should we make, uh, you mentioned there briefly, of the intrusion of men into the realm of women, sports, celebrity, politics? Yeah. Well, I don't think we should be surprised by it at all. If you look at the 70s and a lot of the the feminist rhetoric at that point, the focus really was on how do we get rid of gender entirely? People have argued that it's a social construct, that it's not part of reality, it's just invented. So the the goal was to let people just be fluid. And um, so that's really what what we have seen and what's been promoted. And so uh, you know, the fact that we're seeing this just feels like the end of the real goal of um, making women happier by making them like men. And simultaneously, you know, feminism has also told men they need to become more like women. And so it just feels like it's reached that end goal. Again, people didn't probably anticipate that, that those those would be the final consequences of it, but that's really what we're seeing right now. So after all these decades, why does survey after survey tell us that women are less happy than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the bit, the key question. And what really motivates me is that fact that women are not getting happier. They're, they're more depressed. Their suicide rates are up, substance abuse, all of these things. And I think part of it is, is because we have taken away from women the very things that actually fulfilled women's lives. You know, we saw that suffering that comes with the vulnerability of fertility and we saw that as something that we needed to cure and get rid of. You know, we, that feminism has told us that our our children are the obstacle to our happiness instead of a means to our happiness. You know, when we take those tender and important and precious relationships away from women, they're not going to be more fulfilled without it. And I, I think that that's just been the natural result. And you could also make the same argument about men and, and husbands. You know, we've really pitted women against men and um, created this rift. And you just can't build relationships off of resentment and bitterness and kind of this blanket approach to men and women where, you know, men are objectively called oppressors and women are supposed to be objectively victims. That's the Marxist sort of overlay that's come upon feminism in the last, in the 1900s. You just can't build on that. You're not going to have sturdy and healthy relationships when people have this awful feelings towards one another merely based on sex characteristics. Can we distinguish feminism and the rise of feminism from the sexual revolution? Obviously, the Mm. sexual revolution, if feminism goes farther back, maybe the sexual revolution does as well. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And um, I think most people have no idea how planned the sexual revolution really was. We sort of have this sense that it was just those crazy 1960s and things just exploded because of the Vietnam War and all of this and that. But um, it was actually very well planned out. There's a book called The Sexual Revolution, well, written by Wilhelm Reich from the Frankfurt School, very much a communist new left, I guess is sort of the better term people use now to disassociate it from communism itself. But he had this blueprint and this idea was really to take Marxism. The Marxists used it for in class warfare. The lower class had to rise up against the upper class. And Reich and others like uh, Herbert Marcuse saw that th- if they could take those ideas, as I mentioned before, of oppressor and victim and apply them to the sexes, then that would create this implosion among our communities and the nuclear family in particular. But it was also the best way to really just, you know, blow up 
the culture and destroy the culture and really undermine the authority of men, which has been incredibly effective in so many respects. So that's happening in the 1960s. So you can see the influence of the Frankfurt School thinkers upon specific women, especially Kate Millett and Angela Davis, who were hugely influential both in the feminist movement, Angela Davis, especially in the Black Panthers, and of course, later Black Lives Matter. But those two were very involved in getting the sexual revolution and its ideas into the academy and the public square. And Kate Millett really saw that using these Frankfurt School ideas, that the way to destroy the family was to destroy, first of all, the patriarch of the family, the father of the family. But the best way to do that wasn't to go after his authority per se, but to really just tear away the culture. And she promoted things like promiscuity, homosexuality, prostitution, all of these things she thought were really crucial to ushering in this sort of leftist utopia, this revolution of sorts that she and communists and new leftists have really been after and are still after. And of course, then we see that play out. I mean, feminism was sort of the gateway drug, if you will, for these further critical race theory and all the woke culture that we're seeing. We would never have ended up with the trans movement and the LGTB movement if it hadn't been so effective in feminism in the first place. So it's pretty amazing when you start realizing like these weren't just sort of random flashes that happened, but there were actually some very powerful people behind them, funding them and um, encouraging them in the academic setting and pop culture and, and so on. Tell us about Mary Wollstonecraft and her book, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Yeah, so Mary Wollstonecraft is considered the godmother of feminism, and she, you know, she's writing at a time the French Revolution is happening, and she herself is among the Romantic thinkers, and these are the thinkers that are they really rejected the extreme rationalism of someone like Immanuel Kant, but at the same time they're embracing some of the ideas from the Enlightenment. Let's get rid of anything connected to theology or faith or anything that's sort of come before us and embracing this very sort of sterile idea of enlightenment. But the romantics thought it's a little bit too sterile. We need mystery. We need artistic expression and creativity. And, you know, we need more than that. So that's sort of part of the movement that she was about already. Then you add the French Revolution to it. And people like Thomas Paine, who's obviously known as an American revolutionist, and then he moved to Europe and was very involved and actually went much deeper into his egalitarian movement. In fact, people think of him as really the first socialist, as people have said that of him. But he was determined to, in his work, The Rights of Man, he talks about destroying any kind of hierarchy, the church and the military and monarchies and things like that. So she's following on his coattails. He's written this pamphlet called The Rights of Man. She writes a book called The Vindication of the Rights of Man. Again, both of them are sort of in dialogue with Edmund Burke, who's uh, the conservative in, in England, who's writing reflections on what he's seeing in the French Revolution and just aghast like everybody is at how bloody it is and how awful it, it has become. Then following up on The Vindication of the Rights of Man, she writes on The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And it's in that book where she really starts outlining some ideas about femininity and women. And that's really where the feminists draw her in as this godmother. But her big thing was really this idea of, again, collapsing society. So you have no kind of patriarchy or hierarchy, anything that uses really those incredible gifts that men have to organize and lead and create civilizations. I mean, obviously, like any gift, they can be used for ill or for good. But the idea is to get rid of them altogether, no matter what. 
and lending itself to this very collapsed egalitarian society. So she's writing along that vein, and that's really what gets picked up and becomes feminism later, but she's really credited with it. And um, tragically, she died giving birth to her daughter, Mary Godwin, who would later become Mary Godwin Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. And then Mary Godwin marries Percy Bysshe Shelley, and he's the one that I think really congealed together what we have come to know as feminism and these in its sort of bare bone understanding of it, because he put together several different things that were inspired by both his Mary Wollstonecraft, that egalitarian idea of what he called the the women's revolution. But he also took ideas from his father-in-law, who was William Godwin, who was a huge anarchist, huge free love proponent. He wanted to get, see that marriage was slavery. He wanted to get rid of any kind of monogamy. Those are all the ideas that sort of ended up in Percy Shelley's work that then went on to highly influence the 19th century feminists, you know, during that whole period of the 1800s, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, and Susan B. Anthony. So anyway, it's really interesting to just dig into all of this and start seeing all of these connections. But I think most people are very surprised to see here that Percy Shelley is the one who kind of crystallized the three elements that would play out in feminism over the centuries. And one of them I already alluded to, that free love idea of Godwin's that is part of the, the feminist movement. The second one is the occult. Shelley was very involved in the occult himself and saw this as an important element. And then the third part is the idea he took from his mother-in-law, this smashing of the, what we would know as the, come to know as smashing of the patriarchy or this collapsing of culture and civilization into something flat and egalitarian. So those are the three pieces that just cycle through the centuries over and over again and kind of get rehashed. And uh, you know we can see that really coming into their own again with the sexual revolution and um, second wave feminism. They just became more aggressive and bloodier and deeper. Dr. Carrie Gress is our guest. Part one of a conversation with her on the history and future of feminism. What is the early feminists' connection to romanticism? We'll answer that next. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Remember, our Lord promised us this. He promised us that the world would hate us if we were true to Him. San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione, speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. He gave us the last beatitude, both in Matthew's version and Luke's version, that we're to rejoice when they ridicule us and utter evil against us unjustly. We're to rejoice. The apostles in the Acts, they rejoiced that they were able to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. So it's up to us to keep the flame of faith and true alive in the darkness. The truth cannot be suppressed. Let us be witnesses of that. You can watch and listen to Archbishop Cordelione's presentation, Making the Case for Speaking the Truth to Power, and all of the teachings from this year's conference for a donation of $300 by Labor Day. It's available via on-demand video streaming or podcast. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. I am not a pretty girl. That is not what I 
do I ain't no damsel in distress And I don't need to be rescued So, so put me down Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkins. Part one of our conversation on the history and future of feminism. Dr. Carrie Grass is our guest, author of the book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Dr. Grass, go into a little more detail regarding what you were talking about before the break. What is early feminism's connection to romanticism? Yeah, so I think it's, we probably wouldn't have gotten feminism at least not the, the the former as early without romanticism because Percy Shelley himself was a romantic poet. He he created this woman named Sithna in his poetry. And she was sort of this, as his wife is writing about Frankenstein and Frankenstein's creature, he's creating this woman named Sithna who becomes the first independent woman. She didn't have a husband and children and it was kind of the first in literature. And she became the model for in the 1800s for other feminists who were just fascinated by this idea of a woman not being connected to a nuclear family. So yeah, it's the, the links are very real and deep. And I think fascinating because very few people would credit Percy Shelley with <laughs> any kind of connection to feminism, obviously just as a man, but as a, as a poet. But the roots really are there in in the Romantic movement for sure. And I think the Romantic movement is is really incredible too, because you, it's not just Percy Shelley. You've got someone like Lord Byron, Keats, and you know others. And a lot of you know, if you look at these these men, they're just horrible, horrible men. In fact, Shelley was not even really accepted in England because he had been such a vile character. I mean, there were so many suicides connected with him of his first wife and another actually. Mary Wollstonecraft's first daughter is said to have committed suicide because he seduced her at one point. There are all these children that are died from various women all over the place. I mean, it's just awful. There, I, I just read this past week actually about Lord Byron as well. He tried to buy a 12-year-old girl in Greece and gratefully the mother said, I'm not selling her for 500 pounds, which you can imagine what 500 pounds was worth back in 1810 or whenever it was. But you know, these were just not the kind of men that you in any way want to see influencing culture. And I think as a result, you also have a lot of very broken women who are influencing the feminist movement that these women shouldn't be anywhere near public policy. And yet that's where the influence has come from. You mentioned Susan B. Anthony and Katie Stanton. You say that the original suffragettes, that movement wasn't hijacked by second wave feminism. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have this idea that the suffragettes were just, you know, they were just really focused on the vote and all of that. I mean, I know that was my impression. And I started digging into the work of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I was just shocked out of my mind because her image is so polished. I mean, she just seems like this very noble, focused woman that suffrage was really her thing. And then you start seeing that, first of all, this is a woman who by and large got her ideas through seances and mediums. I mean, that was a huge movement at the time. She lived in New York and that was kind of the center of a lot of the the Great Awakening and also the mediums that were being used and wrapping tables and you know, all kinds of weird occult activity happening. So she was involved in that. She also had really, she was raised, I think, a Calvinist, but quickly left that as an adult woman and became very focused on theosophy, which is sort of this cobbled together religion that this woman named Madame Blavatsky had cobbled together from all these various occult activities from around the her travels from around the world. 
So Katie Stanton was influenced by that. She wrote this book called The Woman's Bible. There was a bunch of other women contributed to it as well, some of them who were stated theosophists. So none of these women were really Christian. She was actually involved with a, a group trying to get rid of Christianity or to curtail its influence. She also got herself into a huge scandal that I, I lay out in the book. It's, it's way too detailed to talk about here, but this huge scandal that involved free love and some minister seducing other women. I mean, it's just such a long and crazy story, but it was all of these things that actually got her thrown out of her own group of feminist group of, of suffragette group that she was the president of because she was just so toxic in terms of the scandals that she became associated with and, and what she was doing. She was also racist. There was all those undertones and elements that are, are whitewashed as well. And Susan B. Anthony was very much her mouthpiece. I think the most of the ideas came from Katie Stanton. She was home with her children and couldn't travel very easily. But Susan B. Anthony was single and she was able to just sort of deliver her ideas. That was really how they worked as a team. And we don't have a lot from Susan B. Anthony that I guess one of her biographers spent four days burning papers and letters and all kinds of things. So what we know mostly is from other correspondence that was written by her and sent to other people. It's not from her internal records anymore. So it's amazing to see that all the things they became embroiled in actually set the suffrage movement back a whole 30 years or something that it just really splintered it and created all this infighting and really broke it up. And so that's why suffrage didn't happen until 20 years later, I think. She's definitely, <laughs> there's a lot of baggage there that was just really remarkable to find again, because this is not in your history lessons, you know, when you're in fifth and sixth grade about um, the suffrage movement. Uh, speaking of the second wave, how influential was Betty Friedan and her book, The Feminine Mystique? Yeah, I don't think that we can overstate how influential Betty Friedan was in, in the movement. Betty Friedan is, and this is actually one of the most fascinating parts I got to research. I, I just, I couldn't put this information down because Betty Friedan always sort of played herself off as this housewife that she just sort of stumbled upon the women's movement. And, um, you know, the reality is, is that she was very much involved with the Communist Party back in the 40s. You know, her whole resume is, is just spotted with engagement with different communist parties and organizations, leftist organizations, even articles that she wrote about the, the feminist movement before she claims to have known about it. And much of this was unearthed by a friend of hers who was so taken by the fact that she clearly was, you know, he he actually saw her at USC using sort of the Saul Alinsky tactics. And he's like, this is not your average housewife. Like something was going on here. So he started digging and then he finally asked her if he could write a book about it. And she said, absolutely not. I will never let you see my private papers. And so he, he just was so intrigued and thought it's amazing that here's this communist woman that was able to be so effective despite McCarthyism. So that's what motivated him to write the book because he thought it would be a good thing for leftists to see this. So his book was just full of details. And then I pieced together some other things, especially from a woman named Bella Dodd who had left the communist party and ended up becoming Catholic and writing some memoirs about her work and how she infiltrated education. Anyway, there was a lot of overlap between these two women and their lives and work. And so I piece some of that together too. But really, her main goal was to get women out of the home. She believed that women would only be free if they were doing productive work in the marketplace and very much influenced by Engels. She has this quote written down about that's where our freedom was, is in the workplace. And Engels, prior to that, had written about motherhood produces children. But it was later 
deemed by the Communist Party that children were really not production, that they didn't really count as being a productive part of the communist revolution. And so that they needed to get women out of the home to make them productive was really the goal. And I think she just took it upon herself to do that, but she did it in a very clever way. She didn't just come out and say that the way that a Marxist would, but she came out and used a lot of psychology. She made women feel like they were victims and she made women feel like they were missing out. And it was highly effective. I think 3 million copies she sold in the first few years of her career or of the book's publication, I should say. But she called the home a comfortable concentration camp, which I still just can't believe she got away with that, first of all. But the irony being that she hated Hitler, but she's using Hitler's ideas. I mean, that's the exact same quote that is at Auschwitz, that Arbeit mach frei, that work makes you free. That was at her heart of hearts what she believed and why she pressed forward so ardently with it. And of course, if the home is your enemy, well, then your husband and your children are also your enemy. And that's really, I think, what just took off and captured the imagination of so many other women who, many of whom were discontented. And then there were others who were not discontented, but they thought, well, I should be discontented. You know, it was just sort of this stirring up of things that women thought that they, you know, were victimized and just ran with it. So it was amazing to see, I think, like wildfire, she really set something off with it. You say that a common pattern emerges in the lives of the first feminist. What is that pattern? Yeah, I think it's this brokenness. You see woman after woman after woman that has some really deep wounds, either with her parents or in relationships, even starting with Mary Wollstonecraft. Her parents were just a horrible example of parenting. Her father was a drunk and they had to move every few years, even probably more frequently than that, because debtors would come to find them and you know they just had to disappear and go somewhere else to keep living. You know, it's this terrible temper. He apparently was, you know, very mercurial. Like sometimes he could be wonderful and jovial. And then other times he was just vicious. There's this awful story about him hanging their family dog. Anyway, and then her mother was very much focused on her, their firstborn child. He was her favorite and everybody knew that. But she was also very submissive to her husband and to to the point where he abused her. Mary tried to protect her her mother from it. And uh, the mother just said, oh, you're just making it worse. You know, she just was not in any way a maternal mother. She was very distant and expected Mary to sort of pick up where she left off in, in terms of taking care of the other children because she was so devoted to her first son. So it's stories like that, that you just see in these women's lives over and over and over again, that makes you realize, you know, there's, the sad problem is, is that they are trying to help women and fix women, but they're grasping at the exact same policies and trends and ideas that are actually exacerbating these problems. Instead of shoring up the family, they're getting rid of the family. Instead of promoting any kind of real authentic love, they're promoting free love. All of these things that just have really destroyed women. So that's, I I think, was the saddest part to just see where all these ideas come from is just this incredible amount of brokenness and these women just need healing. And instead, they're, you know, sort of just taking the whole ship down with them. Dr. Carrie Grass is a married mother of five children in Virginia, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and author of several books, including her latest, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. You can purchase this book at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Next time, in part two on the history and future of feminism, we'll talk with Dr. Grass 
about the group of feminists she calls the mean girls and answer the question, what does womanhood apart from the myths of feminism offer society? When we come back, it's time to talk about the prosperity gospel with Pastor Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. The days are shortening and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom, and we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. Come and see our various prints by Cronach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. <laughs> 